Praise God. I have uh, enjoyed this. <laughs> I have enjoyed it. Uh, I have spent a lot of hours just in the last little while here, and uh, I'm the better for it. Praise God. you got to be kidding me. Now it freezes. Look at that. How about that? Of course, it's acting crazy, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> Thank God. It's still not saying 730. That was uh, a little bit there. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. <laughs> Sorry. I announced 730. Wait, there it is. <laughs> Welcome to... Uh, Lesson three of the Godhead Seminar. Uh, it has been a wonderful time these last two nights, and I'm expecting the Word and the Spirit to be wonderful again tonight in manifestation. Uh, I will say at the beginning, I'm going to say at the end, uh, you will be able to go to apostoliciron.com. By the end of the weekend, and all three of these lessons will be available to you there. Some may be available sooner than the end of the weekend, but I have some other things on the schedule, and I can't be in a place of being pressed to make sure I get all of that done uh, by tomorrow. So you're welcome to go there. There's no charge, uh, because, but since you are freely receiving, you cannot freely sell it. What you get free, you've got to give away. You cannot sell. If you're being, if it's being given to you, uh, I will not stand by for somebody to sell what they've been given free. Praise God. So this is lesson three. The first night we focused on, uh, knowing who the I am God is. And last night we talked about logos. And tonight we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the Godhead from the perspective of titles, biblical titles. There's a couple of things, though, that I need to do by way of preparation and introduction. First of all, we have prefaced each of these sessions with this expression of desire, that our goal is to have the Holy Ghost wash our minds, our hearts, our spirits free of every extra-biblical, traditional thing that didn't come from the Bible. Amen. I don't trust stuff that doesn't come from the Bible. If you do, uh, there's a casino or two around here where you can put some money on a roulette wheel because you're doing exactly that with your eternity. I'm not willing to do that. We need the Spirit of God to purge our minds, our hearts, our souls, our spirits from all tradition and all traditional terminology and only use the book. Jesus promised, John 16, 13, Howbeit when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. If you have all truth, God bless you. I don't have all truth. I don't know any honest person that would say they have all truth. 
I don't believe God intended for us to uh, arrive. I believe as long as we're here, as long as we're breathing, He intends for us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, this is the point. Now, this, this is the step of faith that you have to make if the Bible is going to be your ultimate source. The final authority in your life. We have to trust that God, trust God with His Word. This came to me today. We have to trust God with His Word. We have to trust that He was able to get His Word to us in our day accurately and reliably and without pollution. We have to trust that. Now, I, I read what the, uh, the text, textual, textual scholars say that those who are, who, who are text critical or critics who examine the Greek and the Hebrew and they say, well, I don't believe this should be in there and this should be in there. I am not a theologian. I am not a scholar of the languages on purpose. I'm a student because I want to just trust the book. I'm not doing it ignorantly. I've spent many, many, many hours studying, but I want to trust the book. There are verses that will be used tonight that are actually seem to be contrary to what I personally believe. And I would have an out because a lot of the critics of the text used claims that those verses were added later. But I'm not going there. It's in the Bible I've got, and I'm going to go with it, and it doesn't hinder or or contradict my faith at all, even though it may appear to do so on the surface. So I'm going to trust God with His Word. And I'm going to trust my entire eternity with God's Word. Because His Word is truth. John 17, 17. And Peter said that it was a more sure word of prophecy. And I can rely on that. Because Hebrews says that the entire universe is held together, upheld by the word of God. If I can't trust his word and rely upon his word to be accurate and faithful, if I can't trust God to have gotten his word to me so that I can read it and know that he meant what he said, he said what he meant, and that I'm not supposed to add to or take away from his word. If I can't do that, I've got no basis for faith. If I've got to pray over every word in the Bible saying, Now, Lord, did you really say this? I can't have any firm foundation. So, very quickly tonight, I think, I want to review the first two lessons so we're all on the same page. The uh, first night we talked about who God really is. We have a tendency to approach God from our perspective. When you start with man and work toward God, you're never going to come up with truth. You have to start with God and work back toward man. And that's what the Bible does. 
Psalms 90 verses 1 and 2. And again, the little uh, tag or title at the beginning of the psalm says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Not you were God. Not you will be God. Only of God can a present tense verb be used when you're talking about what's before the beginning and after the ending. Only of God. Thou art God. The I am God or the infinite God. The one who's outside of time and space and all created things. What is God? Everything that's not created. So the universe is created. Even those that don't believe in God acknowledge the universe started at some point. So anything that's got a a beginning is created. Only one has no beginning. And that's our God. He is the one true and living God and He's infinite. He is before all time and after all time. He lives outside of the universe because He created it. Then, God personally identified himself to Moses as the I am. Genesis 3.13, I've already read this two nights, here you get it again. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. They shall say to me, What is his name, and what shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And that's the Greek word that means or the Hebrew word that means to exist. So literally he's saying, I exist that I exist. The only defining parameter you can use of this God, the God, is existence. There's no other measurement you can use to call him great, limits him. There's nothing you can say about him that doesn't limit him except to say he exists and has always existed and will always exist. And he says, and, and verse 14 again, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now, Moses asked, What name am I going to give? And the Lord said, I am that I am, and I am. Well, it's saying the same thing. I exist. Or, according to the Hebrew dictionary, the self-existent one. I am that I am. So, this one true and living God who exists before all things and who created all things is known as the I am God. Not I am God. The I am. Is God. Any name of God that does not have the, have I am it as its foundation is not a name of God. We'll get into that more later. Since God is infinite and outside of time and space, outside of the created universe, 
Again, this is just review. And he cannot directly relate to or participate in time and space. He needed a conduit or mediator. That's the Logos. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, Logos, the Greek. And the Word, Logos, was with God. And the Logos, the Word, Logos, was was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. How much of a condemnation is it to be a creature created by the creator, and I don't know who he is. I've been created by the creator, and I don't have a clue who he is. Verse 11 again, he came unto his own, his own received him not. How's that possible? How can the creator come to those he created, especially humans, and them not receive him? How can you reject the one who's the source of your existence? Now, I know there's a lot that's done that, but the book says this. Ecclesiastes, I believe it's 8 and 11. Since sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. God doesn't do knee-jerk reactions. So just because we do wrong and nothing happens by our time frame, (laughs) we think everything's okay? Not so. And then finally, John 1.14, And the Word, the Logos, was made flesh, And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then finally, verse 18 tells the whole story. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Or, I'll put it this way, the only, the the Logos, who's in the bosom of the Father, he's the one that reveals him to us. Praise God. Praise God. Isaiah 96 is, boy, what a mouthful. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. These aren't his names. My name is Chester. A lot of folks don't know that. The only thing they know to call me is Bishop. I lost my name when I became bishop. It used to be Brother Wright. Nobody calls me that anymore. Not because I've asked. My wife doesn't usually call me that. Even Chester, especially if she's around anybody, it's Bishop I. That's what my name is called. That's not my name. So his name is called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Now, if he's not those things, 
in and of himself, then those were lies. You can only title somebody with something if the title is true. Otherwise, it's sad when somebody goes around with a title that they have no business to. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This verse gives us a glimpse into what's coming after time as we know it. That's another subject. So, let's start tonight. There are only two elements or expressions of God that pre-existed creation, the creation of time and space. Only two. There was no other office. There was no other title. There was no other manifestation of God. There was no other relationship of God to man or whatever that pre-existed creation. Before there was anything else, there was only I am and his expression as logos. The two elements are not different gods. Any more than body and soul makes each of us two persons. Our souls are very different from our bodies. But both are needed for there to be a fully functioning person singular. My soul can't be a person separate apart from my body being a person. And we're going to go into the the biblical proof of this, but I'll give you the punchline first. Okay? The I am in the parable of our being, humans, our bodies. The I am is the soul. The logos is the body. Just hang on. I'm getting to that. Why? How can I make such a statement? Man was made in the image and likeness of God. Our creation alone was intended to be parabolic, meaning of a parable. A a parable is a statement or comment that conveys a meaning indirectly by the use of comparison, analogy, or the like. A parable is an example or illustration from the natural or of, or the temporal realm that is used by God to communicate supernatural or eternal principles. And the Bible is full of examples of God using natural things He created, either things or processes or principles that He created to illustrate to finite man Heavenly principles. For instance, why would God use parables? The reason he would use parables is that he is, first of all, challenging us to recognize that something is a parable. Second of all, The second is understanding the meaning of the parable. 
God uses these two elements to test hearts. Matthew chapter 13 verse 1. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him. So that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables. Saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Skipping down to verse 10. The disciples wanted to know, why do you speak in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore, and see, we take that verse and we, we make it all natural. Oh, that's terrible. God's going to take away what I've got. <laughs> Let me tell you what. You'd be really well off if he only took the natural rather than what he really is taking. Titus, I believe it's one sixteen, says, They say they know me. They say they know me, but in works are reprobate. That's a paraphrase. They say they know me, but in works they're reprobate. So, even what they say they have, he takes that away. Verse 13. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I shall heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Here is the dividing line. I, Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He wasn't talking about war. He was talking about division. Dividing those who think they can see and think they can hear from those who do. Because, as I said last night, he said he hides things from the wise and prudent. Those that are pursuing him intellectually. And he reveals them unto babes. Those that recognize that the things of God are so free, far beyond human ability to figure out. That they simply fellowship with God. Study his word and allow him to open up their minds and hearts to his explanations. Do you have any idea how foreign that is to most people today? Used to, people would at least read the Bible because they had nothing else to do. Now, few people read the Bible at all because they've got too much to do. And it's all just time wasters. There's nothing profitable, hardly, that comes out of any of it. So we don't have time for the Word. 
We don't have time to spend time with God. We don't have time for Him to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that perceives. We don't have time for it. Because we're too busy keeping up with who went to bed and when and what they had for dessert tonight. I'll go back to the notes now. The Lord God's use of parables was intentional. They revealed truth to those with eyes to see and ears to hear, and they hid truth from those without spiritually discerning eyes and ears. There's just a few parables. I mean, the Bible's full of them. I'm only giving you a couple of examples just so you can understand what I'm trying to get across. There are, there, here's just a few parables we live with every day. All of the following have been specifically identified and applied in Scripture as parable. Natural things with spiritual application. Marriage, being a husband, being a wife, every bit of it. Families, parenting, being a son, being a daughter. It's all used to explain spiritual principles. The tabernacle and temple the Jews built. The scriptural laws, spiritual authorities, natural authorities are all used to demonstrate spiritual principle. Water is used as a parable. One time it's described as a well. Another place as rivers. Floods. All of these things are used as parables. Creation is used as a parable. The sun, the stars, agriculture, seasons, day and night, and on and on. Body and soul are used as parable. Sleep is used as a parable. Growing, aging, dying is all used as a parable. It's appointed unto man wants to die, but hey, wait a minute. Paul said, I die daily. What's he talking about? It's a parable. Natural death is intended to help us understand what it means to die spiritually. Well, so-and-so offended me. Hey, the parable says you're not dead yet. You can't offend a dead person. See the point? I don't even have to explain that, do I? The parable declares it. Here's just one very important example of God's use of parables in his teaching on the new birth. I'm going to start with John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered, said unto Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the Jews. Jesus answered, said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? He didn't get it. He didn't get it. God wasn't talking about being reborn naturally. He was talking about he created the process of natural birth to demonstrate the principles, parameters, and all that goes into being spiritually born. That's why if somebody says all I have to do to be saved is confess Christ. I got to say, tell me how that fits with the details of birth. Yes, the Bible says that we're begotten by the word. But ask any lady here that's ever had a baby what the time frame is between the child being begotten by the husband and conceived by the wife 
and the birth. That's the beginning of the process, but it's not the end of the process. How do I know that? The example Jesus gave. He called it birth. He created the process. It's a parable that I can use as a point of reference because I understand the natural side of it. I can use the natural principles and see how they correlate with spiritual principles. And wow, now I've got revelation and understanding. But if I ignore the parable, I do it to my own eternal damnation because I can claim to be born again when I'm not such, no such thing. Some people believe repentances being born again. Really? Then you tell me why the reversal of position that took place in my wife's womb both times, one four weeks out, the other six weeks out, was not synonymous with the birth. It was preparation for the birth. It was getting into the birth position, the normal birth position. But it wasn't the birth. Can you tell me why it is that common around the world for all time, when that baby comes out of the womb, why they smack it if they're not, it's not making any noise. They're not trying to be cruel. So wonder somebody hadn't come up with accusing doctors of child abuse for smacking a newborn on the backside. That's how ignorant we've gotten. Why do they do that? They want to hear the baby cry. They do. They want to hear the baby cry. Because it's the age-old test that the breath of life is in that baby. John chapter 3 verse 8, which I'm not going to read right now. You're welcome to. It's what the scripture says is still the sign. So Jesus said to Nicodemus, verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say, said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered, answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master or a senior teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify what we've seen. We talk about the natural things you should understand so that you could understand the eternal principles. I'm telling you what you know and you don't get it. And you receive not our witness. Now verse 12. If I've told you earthly things. And you believe not. How shall you believe. If I tell you of heavenly things. See here's where the problem is. Here's the heavenly thing. You ready? Just a few verses later. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. You know what that was? That wasn't an earthly thing. That was a heavenly thing. That heavenly thing, that verse as a heavenly thing, told us what God did 
from his perspective to provide your salvation. I can't obey the heavenly thing and get there. I've got to obey what was taught by the earthly thing. New birth. If I want the benefit of the heavenly thing, I've got to do what the earthly thing was that he used. One doesn't contradict the other. They harmonize. The Lord Jesus Christ used the birth process to teach what the coming New Testament plan of salvation would be when it was revealed. Any plan of salvation that does not abide by all of the principles revealed by the natural birth process, which the Lord our God intended by His design of the process, is scripturally invalid. And you can trust it if you want. God bless you. I'm not your judge. Hope to see you there. But I'm not relying on that. Not going to do it. I'm taking what he said. He, he said what he meant. He meant what he said. God, in, in the Bible, the Lord said what he meant and meant what he said. He didn't say stuff he didn't mean. And, he, and what he meant to say, he said. So here's the principle. Every natural thing, process, principle, etc., that has God's signature on it, has a divine purpose of revealing heavenly things to the finite. Everything. Things that's got man's signature on it, don't worry about it. Things that's got God's signature on it, whether it's something he created, something he created, some process he instituted, some principle he founded in the natural realm, Every single one of those things is intended to be a teaching tool for God to teach you and I how to get closer to Him. Because we're in the finite. How do the finite understand the infinite without some kind of teaching aid? Isn't God amazing? Isn't he? he planned all this before the foundation of the earth. He created and instituted all of this before he even started anything. He did, he planned everything meticulously so that we're without excuse. This principle of creation declaring the glory of God is very, very important. It is of significant benefit to our understanding of all spiritual principles and concepts, including and especially the I am and the logos. Now, the ultimate parable in the scripture is the father and the son. Again, John 1 and 1, we've read that already. In the beginning was the word, words with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Of the four Gospels, three of them actually start with the birth of Jesus. John does not. John starts essentially in the same place that Genesis 1-1 starts. It's not like the other three Gospels at all. It's not at all. John's Gospel is so different that the great majority of the gospel of John focuses on the relationship between the father and son. The other day I was studying and I thought, 
I'm just going to copy every verse out of the Gospel of John into a document that directly or indirectly relates to the Father and the Son. I might as well have just copied and pasted the whole book of John because it almost ended up being that. Especially from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 17. Jesus' prayer after his teaching in John 14, 15, 16, his prayer with them before he went out and prayed for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and died out to his own will and then eventually uh, was taken and crucified. That whole prayer was his prayer for us that we would understand what was going on between the Father and the Son. But he gave them the clue in the previous chapter. He said, John 16, verse, uh, I'm just going to read the verse for time's sake. Read the whole context, please. John 16, verse 25. He said, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. Now, I've looked at every translation I've got, and that's of the New Testament, and that's about 41 now, all right here. I looked at every one of them. I looked and checked every Greek reference I had, and there wasn't one of them that tried to say that the Proverbs he was talking about, the one he was now going to no longer speak in, parabolic language, but was now going to speak plainly of the Father, wasn't referencing the relationship between Father and Son. If if all of that language is a parable, because I understand I've been a son and I'm now a father, and I I have sons, and I, I, I had a father-son relationship and now I've got a father-son relationship and, and so I've got experience with both of those and my poor wife, she has had experience with me being a son to a father and me being a father to a son. So she got to experience all that from a very helpless standpoint because <laughs> I didn't always listen to her when she didn't agree with my reaction either as a son to a father or my reaction as a father to a son. So I understand that. So when when the I am and the logos, the I am especially, uses the terminology for him as father and for the logos as son, and he tries to explain to me who they are, what 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 how they interact as one god the god and he uses father and son to do it you go hey that's really good except when i make it literal rather than a parable now i've got a problem uh pastor i don't see you with stacks and stacks of wheat seed bags in the back here we're going to take parables literally. Every one of you wants to go to heaven needs to find you a seed bag. Go walking around scattering seed. 
No, we don't do that. We know that's not what he's saying. How do we know? By the, by the very fact that we know that's not what he's saying when he's talking about sowing seed, the, par- the sower went forth to sow, we just condemned ourselves when we try to make father and son literal rather than parable. I didn't write that. You know, if you got a red letter Bible, it's in red. Of course, you know the Greek doesn't have any red text. It's all the same color. But someone was really kind to try to make sure we understood what Jesus actually said and what he didn't. So he put all the words of Jesus in red. Now, I don't have a big time problem with that because it helps me right here. Jesus said this. <laughs> Let me give you an illustration. When Jesus in John chapter 10 talked about the shepherd and the sheep, in verse 6, this is what he called all that he had just said from John chapter one, uh, 10 verse 1 down through verse 5. This parable spake un- Jesus spake unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. He was speaking about the shepherd, the good shepherd, and the sheep. And it was a parable. And they didn't understand what he was saying. It was a parable. The Lord didn't tell us to get out on all fours because we're sheep. I'd be in bad trouble because I'm not very hairy. I can't grow wool. Some of you, let's stay on the subject. Okay, praise God. (laughs) He called it a parable. He told them it was a parable, and they still didn't get it. Shepherds and sheep. He's the shepherd. They were the sheep. They're looking around. I don't look like a sheep. Do you look like a sheep? They didn't get it. And that's the point here, you see. We understand shepherd and sheep. That's a parable. We understand the new birth. That's a parable. I'm not crawling back inside my mother's womb. Of course, that's no longer even possible, and I'm not trying to be crude. But Nicodemus, the ruler, the master of teacher of Israel, asked the question. I'm not going to go invest in seed bags or bags of seed. Why? They're all parables. Hmm. <laughs> so, you ready? What this means is, Father is the primary parabolic title of the I am in time and space. Son and or Christ are the primary parabolic titles of logos in time and space. Those were not their titles before creation. You're saying, so God wasn't the father before creation? Only in his mind. The son was created before the foundation of the world. Really? Where did he store him until Bethlehem? I'm not being facetious. He was created in the mind of God. Logos. 
Logos knew he was going to be robed in flesh. Our whole human being is intended to be a living illustration of our creator God. The relationship between our body and soul supplies typology for understanding the relationship between the I am the Logos. No one could think to make our souls, no one would think to make our souls separate from our bodies as a consideration. In fact, if we have two personalities, we are considered unhealthy. So is the Godhead. The I am is not a separate person or personality from his Body. The Logos. The Logos is not a separate or separate personality than he is from his soul. They're two different dimensions of the exact same one God. Well, you say, well, God didn't need a body. He's been forever, forever, beyond forever, before everlasting. That may be true, but you tell me how many billions upon billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of years before creation was when he decided to become a man? Because I can't find it. He gives us no clue. Do I believe it was a... here? A, a, see, this is the best we can do is find it. Was it a split-second decision? If you exist, is there any seconds to split? I don't know. Frankly, I know there was a beginning. I know that the I am could not have been independent of the beginning. When that beginning was before the creation, I don't know. I just know there was a beginning. So the point is, <laughs> Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So whatever form man took on, it preexisted in the mind of God as his own representation to himself because he claimed the image as his. He claimed the likeness as his. He claimed that it represented his image and his likeness. Not in ownership, meaning you're my image. But he created Adam to duplicate, to replicate the image of God that he had in his own mind as a part of this whole plan. So verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he him, he them. So I'm going to read a little bit here just to make sure I don't miss a point or two because this, this is all hot off the press this morning. I've never taught this that I remember or certainly not like this. It was given to me in prayer this morning. So by his own example that he gave us, our bodies, our beings, we can make the following observations as we're the parable. 
Our souls are alike in concept and function to the I am God, the infinite spirit. Our bodies are alike in concept and function to the logos. What we are in the natural, this is what the logos is in the supernatural and the eternal. Our souls are to us the invisible but very real us, including our all of our character, abilities, will, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, rights, etc. That is what the I am God is to everything that exists outside of him. Our bodies are the only us that people see and can relate to. Relate to. If you want to talk to my soul, the real me, you have to talk to the ears on my body. If you want to show me something, you have to put it before the eyes that are on my body. If you want my soul to see it, you want my soul to hear it, it's got to come through my body. I have no other way to know it. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. That's a parable. Like the I am, my soul comes or originates from another realm beyond the natural. It is supernatural in origin. My soul's not like this. My soul's eternal. My body is not in this context. I will always have a body. But those who are not a part of Jesus Christ, you will keep this natural body and suffer in it forever. But those of us who are in Christ, we're going to get a glorified body. It will look the same. I'm sad to say that for me, but, you know, because... Is it going to be the 20-year-old me or the 40-year-old me or is it this version? I guess when I make it, it's really not going to matter, is it? Like the logos, which can relate to time and space, my body is made up of that which allows it to relate to the earth, time and space. My body will always be the visible representation of who I am. The real me is my soul, but my soul needs the body to interact with everything outside of me. My soul needs the body to interact with everything. Oh, I love my wife. 50 years. I love my wife. You say, well, you guys interact soul to soul. Heart to heart. Maybe. Sometimes mind to mind as much as it's possible for female and male minds to mesh. But not soul to soul. There's only one I can relate to directly from my soul. Hmm. But again, no one would think to make two perfect, two different people out of my body and soul. Nobody would consider saying, okay, now I'm talking to Chester Wright, the body. Or I'm talking to Chester Wright, the soul. Uh, soul, do you have a different name than the one that's on the body? No, you see, whatever name's given me is the one name for everything. There's not a name for the soul and not a name for the body. There's 
me, my soul, and body together as one person, one being, and that has a name. Oh, this just gets better and better, you see. Or, as a little one would say, gooder and gooder. But again, no one, no one would think to make two different people out of my body and my soul. Likewise, the I am and the Logos are not two different gods or even personalities of God. They are the two essential elements of our God, the I am deity that allows him to interact with and relate to time and space. With this understanding of heavenly principle, we are now going to consider the earthly titles or descriptive terminologies that the Bible uses to help us understand how the I am and the Logos relate to each other in time and space with us and with us as human beings. Before we begin, we need to examine these identifiers. We need to examine the principles that biblically govern their use. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm going to simply sum it up this way. I've said it twice, two nights, and we'll say it again. I reject any title or descriptive term for God as a total or God, any part of God, that you cannot show me that specifically in the Bible. I will not accept extra-biblical terminology. I'm uh, I'm going to uh, Italy for a little while for my 50th wedding anniversary. Looking forward to it. And we're going to drive through the town of Trento, which is where the Council of Trent was held in 683 A.D., I believe, is when they finally identified the Holy Ghost as the third person. I'm only passing through. I'm not even pulling off the interstate. I'm really considering how to go around the town. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just trying to be funny. There's a difference. Okay? So, when you get the notes, you can read all this on terminology, but I'm not going to. I will say this. In the Bible, there's a significant difference between a name and a title. The Lord said of his name in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. He said, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. And that was, uh, that was, he said, I am that I am and I am. But then he said the word, uh, Y-H-W-H, the Lord God, the Lord God of your fathers. That's not Adonai, Lord. That is the unpronounceable, I said it wrong, Tetramaton. I think somebody helped me with that today. I, I know I know how to spell it, saying it. Eh, it's not speaking in tongues, and so I have a hard time with it. Okay? Uh, the Lord God of your fathers. It's Y-H-W-H. It's that the Lord gave his name as vowels with no, or consonants with no vowels. You can't say a word with consonants and no vowels. And that's why it was hundreds of years later when somebody came up with a brilliant idea 
to add the vowels from the Hebrew word Adonai, which is, which is translated Lord or Supreme Ruler, to this unspeakable tetragrammaton. Ah, I think I did it. Close, it's close. So that you could say it. If he wanted you to say it, he would have told you how and when to do it. Oh, that's right, he did. <laughs> he did. How about, uh, oh, where is it? And, uh, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. And I read about this today. And the name Jesus literally in the Hebrew is YHWH saves. So we finally had a way to say his name. Now here's the problem. If the name of God is only and forever YHWH, we have a major contradiction in the scripture. Because Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5 says that the Son is given a name that's much better than the angels. That's okay so far. But Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth, then start on earth. Of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. Now, if the name Jesus isn't at its most basic Hebrew origin, YHWH saves, now we got a problem because God said His name, YHWH, is His memorial forever. And yet, here's this name that's given that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess of things in heaven and things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, it didn't stop there. Acts chapter 4, verse 7. I have to include this. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? Speaking of the lamb man being healed at the gate, beautiful, in chapter 3 of Acts. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of, uh, of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by, the, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and, by, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified... And whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which the builders said it, which was said it not of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 2.36 this is the conclusion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, or message. He didn't preach sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, said unto Peter, rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost.
if the name of Jesus isn't the eternal, forever name of God, Y-H-W-H, revealed to the point that it's speakable, then you and I might as well go get a hamburger because we're wasting our time here because the Bible is totally unreliable because that's one of the biggest contradictions you could ever find in the Scripture. If God doesn't even know what his name is, if he doesn't know what his name is, Ephesians chapter 3 says, the whole heaven, a family of heaven and earth is named after our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the name you get is the family name. It's a family name. The name of Jesus isn't a first name. It's a family name. Here are some of the variations of the name of God in the Bible. I am, I am that I am, Y-H-W-H, Jesus, Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus, and Lord Jesus Christ. Any other word that's used in reference to God is not a name, it's a title. The following are most of the biblical titles used in regards to either the I am or logos or both. God, Lord, the Almighty, Savior, Master, Rabbi, Teacher, Father, Christ, Emmanuel, Son of God, Son of Man, Holy Ghost, Counselor, the Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Jesus Christ, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of His Son, Spirit of Life, Spirit of Truth, Spirit of Wisdom, Spirit of Promise. we got a whole lot of gods, don't we? If each one of those is the name of a person, we got a lot of gods. All of these descriptive titles are intended in context to focus on some aspect of God. Each title speaks of a relationship with a different focal point. Each each also has different denotations and connotations. So, if we're going to rightly divide the word, 2 Timothy 2.15 which means correctly interpret or understand biblical principles, including especially the Godhead. Every scripture that references one of these titles has to be identified as to time frame because God revealed himself differently in many different time frames. And it's a progressive revelation. And if we want to correctly, rightly divide or correctly interpret the scripture, we've got to identify the time frame. For instance, the questions are, is it, is that, is the text referencing the existence of God before creation? Is it referencing the Godhead during the period from the beginning of time, uh, slash creation to before the birth of Jesus? Is it referencing the Godhead during the period from the birth of Jesus up to the beginning of the New Testament? Is it referencing God and his relationship to and with the church after the beginning of the New Testament up to the second coming, the church age? Is or that That's defined as the church age. Is it referencing the Godhead during the post-rapture premillennial uh, reign period of prophecy? Is it referencing the Godhead during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth? Now, last but not least, is it referencing the Godhead during the post-prophecy time of eternal life? The time after all written things are fulfilled. We must never forget that in approaching the subject of Godhead, 
or of the God or the Godhead, God hid himself from man and from man's understanding from the beginning. He called this the mystery of God. His purpose was to use the revelation of himself as a primary indicator of who his people are and are not. Thus, this is demonstrated by the Spirit of God's use of the Greek word mysterion, which is usually translated mystery, but does not mean incomprehensible. It means uh, secret, hidden secret. Okay? Uh, I'm, I was going to read through scriptures on... Um, on the mystery and what that is and what that's about, but you're welcome to do that if you care to get the notes and study it yourself. Uh, So I'm skipping down. Here's the question. Will we let the Bible actually say, will will we let what the Bible actually says not what we think it says or what we've been told it says, be the guide or instructor of on the subject of the Godhead, or will we only look at scriptures through the lens of our traditions and our traditional terminology? I had uh, cataract surgery several years ago. Uh, I thought I was, you know, I just thought I had a little problem with light shining in my eyes. I, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know my eyes were being affected any other way. Till the cataract was taken out. And all of a sudden the colors were crystal clear. What I thought was white was actually tan. And, uh, what I thought was bright was, was dim. Cause all of a sudden I see colors absolutely like I hadn't seen them in years. And the brightness of everything was amazing. I did not realize that that wafer inside my lens that they call a cataract was changing everything I saw. What my mind was registering wasn't reality. What my mind was registering, I would have sworn I was seeing X, Y, Z, but what my mind was seeing wasn't reality. There was something clouding my vision. It was affecting what I saw. And if you use traditional terminology and you are into describing things with extra-biblical concepts and precepts of theology or tradition, you're not seeing clear. You're not seeing clear. We must never forget this one very important point. God always knows who and what he is, even if we don't. And I'm not going to talk him into fitting what I want to say he is just because I'm blind or, or clouded. You know, the, the scripture when it says, if our gospel be hid, it's hid and then lost. And who the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them believe not. The word blind there doesn't mean you don't see any light. It's the word opaque. You've seen windows like that. You can see through them. There's light coming in through the window, but the window is opaque. It's clouded. On purpose. You can see forms. And if that's all you've ever known, you think you see. Till one day the opacity of that glass is removed and it's replaced with clear glass. And all of a sudden you go, whoa. I didn't know that's what was on the other side of that glass all this time. 
Here's a major point. It should be noted and never forgotten that the purest, least complicated, most direct references to God, the Godhead, etc., occur before and after time. All other descriptions of God and explanations of the Godhead must be harmonized with the declarations and revelations of God as He is, the I Am, in both of those dimensions. Before the mountains were brought forth, from everlasting to everlasting, I am God, He said. Everything we believe, all of our language, everything, all of our concepts has to be harmonized with God. Not asking Him to harmonize with our blindness. Oh, hallelujah. I got to skip through all this. You're welcome to read it. Some good stuff, I think. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed being the conduit to write it down. <laughs> One of the most controversial subjects concerning the Godhead is who is the deity in Christ, the Son of God? Who's the deity in him? Some would use terminology such as God the Son. I know. Now, a very easy concordant search will show you that there is no such phraseology anywhere in the Bible as God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. Because the deity in the Son is not God the Son. (laughs) The deity in the Son is the Father. First Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God wasn't made flesh. The Word was made flesh. But God was manifest in what was made flesh, that visible representation of Him. We read it the other night. I don't think it's in the re- anywhere in the rest of these notes, but it's a great place. Second Corinthians chapter uh, 4, again, verse 3. If our gospel be hid, hid to them and lost in whom the God of this world have, uh, hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine on them. Jesus Christ, or uh, gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Next verse. Uh, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to see what God looks like, you got to look at Jesus. Christ is the better word. Because God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ. He is not more Christ than he is Lord. Jesus is not more Christ than he is Lord. He's not more Lord than he is Christ. He is the manifestation, the visible manifestation of the I am God through the Logos forever. Now, here's terminology, see. And uh, you're going to have to be quick up there. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 3.23. And ye are Christ. And what? Christ is God's possession. 
G-O-D apostrophe S. Luke 2.16, 2.26. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the L-O-R-D apostrophe S Christ. Huh? Christ is God's, not plural God, but possessive God's. And the Lord's Christ, how about this one? Luke 9.20, and he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. Of God is a prepositional phrase of possession. God's Christ. And then Acts 4.26, The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, and against His Christ. Let's see, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, try four. Christ and the Lord are no more equal than body and soul are. Both necessary. Thank God for both. I'm not willing to give up one or the other. They both have a role, both have a place, and together they make me who I am, my person. But this is my soul's body. Or in another place it says house or tabernacle. This body is where my house lives. This body is how, excuse my soul lives. This, this house or body is, is how my soul resides in time and space and interacts with time and space. See, that's what's really amazing. We don't think about this very much. But I don't see who you see stand here. I don't know the guy you're looking at. I live inside here looking out. Hello? I said, I live in here looking out. The only me you see is what you can see with your eyes. And that's not me. That's just my house. Thank God I got a house. Because when I put off this house, that's called dead, right? But God can't die. So therefore, if he's a part of time and space, he's got to have a body. He's got to have a logos. Without the I am, the logos is not God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I'm hurrying down here, so we'll go quickly. All right. I, I'm not going to read. I'll just quote this. Matthew 1, 18. And the virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name. Again, title. It's not his name. His name is called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is what? God with us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. To it, or take note of this, that God was, He wasn't Christ. God was not, it didn't say God was Christ. It says God was in Christ. You mean God's Christ, the Lord's Christ, the Christ of God. How about this one? This gets even gooder and gooder. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. 
My body and my soul are one. You don't want one of those or the other. I don't want you to have one of the uh, other of those. I want it to be all together because without one or the other, I'm not me. So John 10, 37 says, if you do not, if I do the works, do not, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Or how about John 14, 6? We're going to read a little bit. Jesus says unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me, or but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how so sayest thou, then show us the Father? Believest thou, oh, here it is, ready? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The deity in the Son is the Father. You get that, you got it. That's it, right there. You got it. Because if you get that, that's the key to every verse. Because if it's talking literally about Father and Son instead of a parable... I'm not in my father. My father's not in me. I got sons that are here. I'm not in them. They're not in me. You can say, well, the resemblance is there, really. The eldest looks like my dad. He doesn't look like me. No, he doesn't. The youngest doesn't look like me. I don't think either one of them look like me. One's a couple inches shorter than me. The other's a couple inches taller than me. Taller than me. So how can you say if you've? How can I say if you've seen me, you've seen my sons? Or my sons say if you've seen me, you've seen my dad. Hallelujah. So verse ten. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. Hello? See, here's where all the confusion comes in. Christ is both Son of Man, Son of God. Son of Man, Son of God. The Logos part makes him the son of God. The mother part makes him the son of man. But the deity part is the I am, the father in Christ. And because we don't understand this, people make two of them. Well, I got a bunch of twos for you to divide here. Ready? Here are just a few of the dual offices of the, that demonstrate the dual nature of Christ. He's God and man. He's the Spirit and the Word. He's the Father and the Son. He's the child's Son who becomes the wonderful counselor of the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the Anointed One and He is the one doing the anointing. 
He's the shepherd and the lamb of God. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the high priest and the sacrifice. He's David's son and David's Lord. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. He's the I Am who was before Abraham, and he's the seed of Abraham. He's the I Am and the one who was, is, the I Am, who's only I Am. He's also the one who is and was and is to come. When you read that verse, he's the one who is and was, is to come, you know automatically that's not talking about the I Am. Separate and apart from time and space. The only way the I am can say of himself, I am, I was, I am to come, is as he's manifested in logos. Because outside of time, he is not was and is and is to come. It's only in time and space that logos, or, or I am manifested through logos, can say was, is, is to come. He's the father of all believers and the brother of the brethren. Huh? He's both the father of the brethren and a brother to the brethren? You don't have, have any idea how much I would have loved to have just loaded every one of these in Scripture. And someday I will. As soon as the middle of me gets a little rest. You can interpret that any way you want. Hallelujah. That's the end of me down there. This is the top of me here. There's a middle that needs a little rest. (laughs) He is the one who hears prayer. And he's also the one that prayed. Let me tell you something. If you need to pray, you're not God. So how can he be God manifested in the flesh and pray? Because the God part of him didn't pray. The God part of him was prayed to. The scripture says, unto thee shall all flesh come. Well, I don't understand that. Oh, wait, then you don't have God in you? I've got God in me. I've got the Spirit of God in me. Who do I pray to? Who was he praying through? You go, ooh. Lord, have mercy. I don't know how to answer that question. If you don't know who you're praying to, you say God's in you, but you pray. And so when the man Christ Jesus prayed, and you want to use his prayer as an excuse to prove that, what? I don't know. What? What are you trying to prove? Right? I don't want to go there. Did you, get, did you pick up on that? I don't want to go there. I want to stay right here. Right? But that's the point. How can he be God and pray? Because he had flesh that was about to die. Now, flesh dies. Last time I checked, God can't die. Flesh dies. Well, if he's God, how did he die? The God part of him didn't die. That's why he said... I have power to lay this life down and I have power to pick this life up again. Because the deity in him that would allow him to die was the same deity that was going to resurrect him. Woo! We may just have church here a little bit. (laughs) 
No comment. I set you up on that one, didn't I? I won't go there either. I'm having fun whether you are or not. This is my favorite subject in the entire world. If you can't figure that out, I'm blowing it big time. Let's say, now we've talked about the Father and the Son. We've talked about Christ. We've talked, somebody's going to say, well, what about the Holy Ghost? You know what? I'm really glad you brought that up. I just happen to have a few verses on that. How about this? The phrase Holy Ghost is never used in the Old Testament. The phrase Holy Spirit is used only three times and never in caps and never in direct reference to the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. And guess what? Neither the phrase Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is ever used in the book of Revelation anywhere. Oh, the Spirit of God's there. But not Holy Spirit. Not Holy Ghost. Now, here's the problem. Jesus Jesus caused a lot of problems with stuff he said. You know that? He messed up a lot of good theology. He said God is, what? A. That's a singular. That's indicating singular. God is a spirit. So every time that there's a phrase said, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of this, Spirit of that. If it's all a direct reference to some aspect of God, it's a reference to some aspect of God. There's only one Spirit. There can only be one Spirit. Now, if there's more than, if there's only one Spirit, then the Spirit in the Father and of the Father is the same Spirit that's in the Son and of the Son. And it's the same Spirit that we call Holy Spirit. Not three spirits, not separate persons or beings. One spirit. Ephesians 4. There's one body and one spirit. Is that really talking about the church? Or could it be it's talking about there's one logos and one I am? Because then he says, and one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, in you all. Is it possible? Well, if the church is one body with one spirit in it, there's only one reason why the church is one body with one spirit. It's because Christ is the body, and he's got the one spirit in him. Because deity is spirit. And the logos is deity because the I am is an integral part of Logos. Because I am is God. That's it. Period. And if anything that doesn't have I am as a part of it, it can't be God. And Logos, if Logos does not, is not the visible representation and the conduit and all of that for the I am, and the I am is in the Logos, then the Logos cannot be God. And we've already read that in the manifestation. God was in Christ. God was in the Logos made flesh. Well, I got a question for you. Who is the Holy Ghost? 
But I've got a more pertinent question for you. When did the Holy Ghost come to be? I didn't say Spirit of God. How about this one? John chapter 7, verse 37. Ready? In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Parentheses. Somehow, the translators knew to put this statement in parentheses that John, by the Holy Ghost, was explaining what Jesus said. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, again, the translators did have some integrity. Because if you look in a printed version of the King James, you'll find that the word given is in italics. And that's not for emphasis. That's the translators letting you know that they didn't understand what they were translating. And they thought given should be there to make sense. Because surely the Holy Ghost, you couldn't say the Holy Ghost was not yet. Surely you couldn't say that. Well, let's find out if you can. How about this? John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. Who's been with him all that time? And he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So whose spirit was coming called Holy Ghost? Now, we acknowledge, we acknowledge that a literal translation, a more literal translation would have been Holy Spirit instead of Holy Ghost. But the translators of the King James, King James has had such a major influence the last couple of centuries especially. And, and these, these translators couldn't help themselves. Since a ghost is the spirit of someone who's departed. And the Holy Ghost wasn't available until after Jesus ascended and was glorified. Then what was poured out had to be the spirit of the one who's departed. I don't mean real ghost. I mean whatever spirit, the deity that was in Christ Jesus was the deity that was going to be poured out. Why is it called Holy Ghost instead of just Spirit? Because the... <laughs> Are you ready? You ready? This is... This is the... Oh, man. The I Am is Spirit. He's invisible. He is fills everything, right? Well, he interjected... He, by becoming Logos, he was able to create time and space. And he injected himself into time and space through Logos. That was his conduit. That was his mediator, his interface. From the infinite to the finite. So, what of the I am 
could pass through logos into time and space. What would that be? God is a spirit. And the Holy Ghost is simply the essence and substance of the infinite God able to pass through logos into time and space. Not another God, but the God, the I am God. That's why the Bible says, Peter said it this way, that when I receive the Holy Ghost, I've been, been made a partaker of the divine nature. This old stinking earthly vessel has become a habitation of God through the Spirit. Hallelujah. Next verse, which would be, let me read that again, uh, verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while the world seeth me no more, but ye see me because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved to my father, and I will love him, and we, and will manifest myself to him, to that person. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever said unto you. John 15, 36, or 26 says, But when the Comforters come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. That's what I just said. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Really? So we go, who's the giver of the Holy Ghost? And there's so many scriptures here. Uh, all the verses I've read already said who's giving the Holy Ghost. If any man thirsts, let me come into me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He said to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was who, who said, give me the drink, you would have asked of him. Uh, and he would have given thee living water. Where are you going to get this water from? The well's deep. Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. It shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. I'm going to give you that well, he said. Luke 24, 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you. Uh, John 20 and verse 22, and he, when he said this, Jesus said, verse 21, Peace be unto you as my Father sent me, even so send I you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, some say they received the Holy Ghost right there. Slight problem. The people he just breathed on didn't receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost according to what it says in Acts chapter 1. He told those same people to go tarry in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father. So what he was doing right then was just simply helping them understand who the source of it was going to be. I've got to go away or the comforter can't come. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, during his message, verse 33, 
Acts 2, 33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, speaking of Jesus, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. And John the Baptist said, three different places, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I indeed baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Not many days hence. Praise God. Now here's the, this is the icing right here. I'm almost done. But here's the icing. Lord Jesus Christ. There are 142 verses in the entire Bible where all three of these words is in the verse. The very first time in all of the Bible that all three of these words is in the same verse, we've already read. Therefore, let all the, Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. 142 verses in all of the Bible where all three of those words, Lord, Jesus, and Christ are used in any order. But the first one, chronologically, is Acts 2.36. That's after the New Testament began that morning at 6 a.m. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. Eighty-four times in the Bible, these words are used in this exact order together. Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the very first time that they were used together together. Acts eleven fifteen, And as I began to speak, Peter talking about going to Cornelius' household. The Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift, the same exact gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What was I? That I could withstand God. What did, what happened to them when they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? They received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Why is all this important? Because Colossians 2 says, beware, verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. After rudiments or the elements of the world and not after Christ. For in him <laughs> dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Not quantitatively, but every bit of the quality of God. Every quality of God. Not one bit of the quality of God wasn't manifested through the Logos. Every quality of the I am except the quantity was manifested bodily in the man Christ Jesus. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And right there, standing before their eyes while he walked the earth, but today, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and other places, especially Revelation, there's one throne in heaven, and there's one sitting on the throne. And if we see that one sitting on the throne, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos manifesting the I am God. 
for eternity. Now I'm going to close with this. The following is the only verse in the whole Bible that uses these three specific terminologies or titles in the same verse, and there's only one of them. Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. Uh, but it didn't stop there. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And here's the problem that so many people have. They're not willing to accept the apostles never did it like that, ever. Ever. There are 50 plus verses that easily prove that they baptized in the name of Jesus. They never one time baptized using the words Father, Son, Holy Ghost. In fact, I'll tell you one more time. Get your concordance out. Look it up. This is the only verse from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 that has those three words or titles in, titles in it. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. No other verse contains all three. There's 142 verses that have Lord Jesus Christ in some order. There's 84 verses that have Lord Jesus Christ exactly. There's one that says Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The following is the only verse in the whole Bible that uses terminology or titles Father, Word, and Holy Ghost in the same verse. John 1, 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, the Logos, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. One verse. Now, a lot of scholars claim Matthew 28, 19 and 1 John 5 and 7 were added years afterwards. I'm, I refuse to accept that. I don't need that. I, don't, I, I believe that. I believe Matthew 28, 19. There's one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That name's the name of the Father. That name's the name of the Son. That name's the name of the Holy Ghost. When you understand those aren't persons, they are the name of the I am God saving. And they're manifestations of the I am God saving through his manifestation into time and space through Logos. And one more time, the following is the only verse in the whole Bible that uses the terminology or titles Lord Jesus Christ, God, and Holy Ghost in the same verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. To take that verse and make them three is stretching it beyond all reasonable bounds of comprehension. It is very easy to prove that each one of these is telling you a different ministry of God through that particular, that's identified by that particular title. I'm almost done. Why is that important? Here it is. Knowing that God is one is the first element of the greatest commandment. Can the disobedient be saved? Mark twelve twenty nine. Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. 
The Lord our God is one Lord. And I'm just going to read this. It, it's, it's so powerful. I just felt like this was supposed to be the benediction, whatever that is. Here is the blessing on those who know who God is and obey him with their whole beings, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel. Israel is the natural seed of God. The church is a spiritual seed. We're all children of Abraham, them by uh, birth and us by faith, according to Romans and Galatians and others. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? And again, every time the word Lord is here is YHVH, not at an I, and I will show you the only two places where it's not. I'll let you know that when we get there. So I'm going to say Lord instead of saying YHVH just for smooth reading. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But the, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak the revealed name. The YHVH saves name. Now, Israel, what does Jesus thy God require of thee? But to fear Jesus thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve Jesus thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. To keep the commandments of Jesus and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is Jesus' thy God. The earth also will, with all of their, with all that is, that therein is. Only Jesus had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after him, after them. Even you above all the people as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. That's, uh, according to Colossians, that's baptism. And be no more stiff-necked. For the, for Jesus your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh away. The Lord of lords there is Adonai. It's not YHBH. Verse 18. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger to, in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, or Jesus thy God. Him shalt thou serve. And to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. He is thy praise and he is thy God. He hath done for thee these great and terrible things, which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons. And now, Jesus thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. Father, it has been so wonderful to fellowship with you. It has been a privilege to meditate on you, to think about you. Thank you for opening our hearts and our eyes, our understanding, so we have a better understanding of who you are. Let the seeds of this teaching grow in each one of us till we all become consumed with knowing you and understanding you and boasting in knowing and understanding you as you have said to us. 
I give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. And I thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before you sign off, uh, again, the three lessons, and they are, you'll get everything I didn't cut out with those lessons. Uh, they will be available, all three of them, no later than the end of the weekend. As I get them done, they will be posted on apostoliciron.com, spelled together, apostoliciron.com. They're free. You're welcome to them. The only stipulation is you cannot sell them. If you print them off, they're in PDF files. If you print them off, you've got to give the paper away. You can't even recover the cost of your paper or printing. Freely you've received, freely give. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be blessed. Amen.